And if doctors were allowed to tell the truth and treat their patients with these therapeutics, we would not have hospitals full of sick people dying. What will save lives, Governor? And it's not the vaccine. Across the country, in town hall meetings and on social media, viral disinformation continues to assist the spread of the Delta variant. In New Jersey, Phil Murphy, the Democratic governor, has begun to shout down the voices of the misinformed. Please get vaccinated if you are not vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. These folks back there have lost their mind. You've lost your minds. You are the ultimate knuckleheads. And because of what you are saying and standing for, People are losing their life. People are losing their life, and you have to know that. Look in the mirror. On today's program, the Delta Wave, the messages competing for oxygen in the public square, and the realities of the pandemic and the anger. This is the Hear Me Now podcast from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Stay with us. Eight months ago, we dedicated an episode of this podcast to the reflections of two healthcare professionals who serve on a palliative care team in LA County. They gave us an honest look at the workings of a hospital during a then unprecedented wave of serious illness and deaths from COVID. That was January. They'll join us again in a few minutes. And again, the story they tell is brutally honest. It's not easy to hear. It's certainly not easy to tell. Listen to the shift in the tone of their voices. Listen between their words. What you'll find is terribly honest. Now realize this transformation in thinking by caregivers, by dedicated, passionate caregivers, is happening in hospitals all across the country. Here's how their story began back in January. I'm Christina Rothens, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I use a mask from the minute that I leave my car to the front door of the hospital out of respect for anybody that I come into contact with en route. Um, those, those last few breaths in the car always feel really precious because they're some of the last few I will take maskless for the next you know, eight or nine hours. On that walk is what I presume is a rented cooler that we use for overflow from our morgue. Because we don't have the accommodations for the number of deaths that our hospital is seeing. So it starts like that. And oftentimes walking up on that pathway, there's this really beautiful entrance to the hospital and it has these different Bible verses and scripture passages kind of etched into the the sidewalk that you don't always see but sometimes when you really need them, you see them. (laughs) And right now that pathway is littered with family members who aren't able to come inside. It's been a constant bracing. So you brace yourself before you put that mask on, you brace yourself before you see that cooling unit, you brace yourself before you see what family members are gonna be congregating outside of the hospital, envying you for being able to go inside. A 
My name is Zara Esmail. I'm a palliative care physician. Essentially, I think the pandemic has given me a realization that as human beings, we cannot control much or change much. But what we can do is rely on each other to build a fabric, a strong fabric of connectedness and kindness and compassion and love for each other. Christina Rothens and Zara Esmail, members of a palliative care team at Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, speaking with us back in January during the winter surge in Southern California. And they join me again now from the hospital. Christina and Zara, thank you for taking the time to talk with me again. You're welcome. You're welcome. Hi, Sean. Hi, it's really great to hear your voices. How are you doing? Tough one to answer that in one word, good or fine. Um, I think for me, I can't believe that we're here again, um, but we are. It's um, almost mirroring the same roller coaster of emotions uh, from winter which is, you know, anxiety, but not anxiety of the unknown, it's more anxiety and um, exhaustion of the known, um, mm. the unvaccinated COVID patients that are now filling up our ICU beds and knowing what that journey is going to look like and how much more we're going to have to pull from inside of us to be able to support the families. So for me, it's, it's, um, it's just exhaustion, I think, and uh, some indifference as well. Hmm. Christina, what about you? Honestly, I'm vacillating between activation and numbness. So depending on the particular moment, I'm feeling myself sort of viscerally respond to what's happening here in the hospital. And then, you know, at another time, I think partly as a result of burnout and partly as a result of my body and brain protecting itself, I just feel really sort of detached from what's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. So. Is that different from back in January? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So this is going to, I think, probably be a difficult question to answer, and I apologize in advance, but given that most of the people being hospitalized now were unvaccinated, do you feel any sense of, I don't know, regret or anger or a sense of this could have been avoided? Uh, or does it bring up any of that sort of emotional stuff? You want to go first? Sure, um, it does. You know, I think it's such a, a human response to, to be angry um, because you're trying to understand why we're here again this rapidly for things that could have been avoided. 
And then when I try to come up with some reasoning in myself, some deeper understanding to why it is that different groups of people choose not to get vaccinated, you know, I, I think about it as people have choices and sometimes those choices are, are poorly made and they have consequences and um, you can't force people, you can't change their minds. They um, have strong opinions um, about why not to get vaccinated. And some of that is very deep-rooted in mistrust of the medical system, of the government, of society, of historically the way um, you know low-income people of color have been treated. Um, so they come from a, a true place of fear, and um, it's hard to really judge people for that. So then the anger goes into or turns into compassion um, for some moments and then when we're actually seeing the patients and talking to the families it just it just turns into um, a routine conversation that we've had so many times before um, and you know there isn't any much else that follows after that I, I echo a lot of what Zara did, Dr. Esmail has said, although I'll say that I'm having <laughs> more anger than I would like to admit. And while I'm working really hard to maintain my professional nature in my relationships and in my interactions with patients and their families, I find that it's getting harder to manage because I am wondering why we're here and it does feel preventable. And I will say that one of the things that I kind of came to this morning in the setting of a team meeting, we work really hard to support each other and that means we need to process these things in time in order to come to work every day. And one of the things that I, I got to in sort of a stream of consciousness that my team so lovingly allowed me to do is that personal choices are not made in a vacuum. And we have supported other people who are very ill from the result of other personal choices. And the easiest example that comes to mind is someone who is very ill as the result of a long-term use of alcohol or drugs. Right. And so often in the hospital, when that happens, other members of the care team sometimes don't respond in the most loving or compassionate or sympathetic way, empathetic way, because they'll say, you know, well, they did this to themselves. They drank themselves to death. They used themselves to death. And it is not hard for me in that situation, as a mental health professional, as a healthcare worker, to connect to empathy, because I know that drug use history, substance use history, alcohol use disorder, alcoholism, are the result of so many complex circumstances. 
predisposition biologically, you know, difficult circumstances that people are born into, financial hardship, loss of job. There's so many reasons that people end up falling into really maladaptive behavior patterns like those. And so often in those situations, I work to compensate for the lack of empathy that the mm. other care providers may may struggle to have. And so what I'm trying to do now is the same thing. Mm. The decision to not be vaccinated was not made in a vacuum. Unfortunately, this decision has been made political. It is, you know, the result of um, malinformation, miseducation, uh, like Zara mentioned, uh, mistrust or distrust of the health system, of the government. And so that's what I'm trying to connect to right now so that I can really feel connected to the support that I'm lending. Because yesterday, when I was aiming to support the wife, the brother of a very, very ill and dying COVID patient who's also very, very young. I was saying all of the right things. I know what to say. I've been doing this now <laughs> for quite a while, but I didn't really mean them. Mm. It's hard for me to say out loud. Yeah. Boy, I, I really admire your honesty in saying it uh, out loud. What did you do when you came to that realization? That I didn't mean them? Yeah. The things I was saying? Yeah. I don't think I realized that until this morning, to be honest, when I was processing and realized that one of the hardest parts about this round is that I'm feeling inauthentic and disingenuous in my work, and that is not who I am. And so before, whereas, you know, when, when we interviewed with you back in January, I was turning down the sounds of Zoom goodbyes because it was hurting me so much. Now I'm hearing people cry and I'm rolling my eyes. Wow. I'm rolling my eyes to people who are suffering. And if that is not the definition of empathic strain compassion, fatigue, burnout, then I really don't know what is. Mm. And it's not who I am. Well, thank you for being that honest. Um, and I hope, I hope you find a resource to, to help you through that. Um, let me just leave it at that. And I hope you, I hope you can make it through that because I, suspect that your professionalism means that all of your skill sets are still there and and that you're serving families well um, and you're looking out after yourself and you've recognized something about your situation of course you probably share it with many of your colleagues um, have you noticed any change of heart uh, among family members? Like, have there been changed minds about vaccination? Um, finding themselves, you know, as part of an ICU waiting room group? 
Not so far. Not really. Wow. I think it's more common that people are kind of maintain their skepticism around the vaccine, which is why we are so incredulous. We are so incredulous. That blows my mind. I can't believe it, it that. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I want to thank the two of you, um, both for your work, but also for taking the time to to talk and to be this honest. I'm, I, I feel honored to to be able to hear that story. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean. Christina Rothens is a licensed clinical social worker, and Zara Esmail is a physician. Both serve on a palliative care team at Providence Little Company of Mary Medical Center in Torrance, California. You can find a link to their January description of the winter surge, which I really recommend to you, on our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. Benjamin Applebaum is the lead writer on economics and business for the New York Times editorial board. He's on the line with me now. Mr. Applebaum, thanks for joining us. Glad to be with you. So we have seen um, in the country a tension throughout the pandemic between public health messaging and economic messaging. Um, It's not unusual to hear political leaders say things like, we need to get back to normal, or we need things to get back to the way they were. And by that, I I take it that they mean retail open for business, unhindered by public health measures that might curtail um, who walks in the door. Um, And at the same time, everyone, I think, understands the need for work. And, And that economic message hits very close to home. We know what it would feel like to be unemployed for a year and a half or two years. Do, do public health messages have a chance when they're up against economic realities like that? So I think that public health messages are most effective when they uh, contextualize the economic circumstances. The most effective public health message during this pandemic has been uh, in the long term, what is best both for public health and for the economy. Uh, is for us to confront this pandemic, to get it under control, to get people vaccinated. Uh, But when we talk about economic messaging, what we're really talking about is a a language of self-interest that's very palpable to a lot of people. They they recognize the immediate utility of being able to make money. uh, And the longer term issues can get lost in that language. Uh, And so if public health frames itself as opposed to people making a living, I think that's tough sledding. Uh, I think public health messaging is most effective when it speaks to people about their self-interest and just shifts the time frame and says to them, basically, uh, we need to confront this public health crisis so that you can get back to making a living. So the market trumps everything. Or is that an oversimplification? I think in our culture, uh, for worse and for better, uh, we have a culture in which the language of the market has primacy, uh, in which Americans generally expect that their economic rights will be infringed only under the most extreme circumstances, and even then only in the most limited fashion possible. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think in our society, the, the harsh reality, we might like it to be different, but the reality under which our politicians operate um, is that uh, economic considerations have the upper hand. Uh, and if you have other considerations that you want to bring into the public square, you're going to have to wrestle with um, what is perceived to be the political dominance of, of the economic considerations. Hmm. There's no ignoring the role politics um, plays in this issue. Um, and many of the people who have refused vaccination or who are opposing mask mandates or any of those sorts of things are people who supported Mr. Trump um, to such a degree that one's attitude about vaccination becomes a sort of shibboleth. I think that's right. I think that, you know, the the question of how you communicate with people uh, is complicated by the fact that the same message isn't going to work for everyone. So, you know, we've been talking about the primacy of economic issues. I think that's true for many Americans. I think many Americans feel that any infringement upon their liberty to transact and to do what they want is is an infringement on what they regard as most sacred and what our society generally treats as most sacred. But even if you find a way of speaking to those concerns, there are obviously people for whom, uh, you know, resistance to vaccination is what can only be described as a kind of religious issue, a, a test of faith uh, in their political commitments. And, you know, they're not accessible either to economic messaging or to public health messaging. Right. I'm wondering if there was anything that could have been done differently, like do you, with the with the value of hindsight, do you look back and say, had we only done X, Y, and Z, we could have avoided some of these health-related problems that stem from economic self-interest. Uh, and some of the economic-related problems that stem from uh, failures of health policy. So yeah, I mean, listen, I, the way I look at this is that I think that the United States undoubtedly had opportunities to do a better job. I think we shouldn't overstate the degree to which that was possible. You know, I've seen some compelling analyses, you know, that if you sort of take into account our population, diversity, age, economics, all of these factors, you know, we're probably doing about 20 percent worse than the nations that have handled this the best. And so that's the margin of difference. And I, I don't want to suggest that that's an insubstantial margin. I, I think clearly better public policies in certain areas could have delivered better outcomes. But it's not like this thing would have gone away or not happened here. So mm -hmm. that that's for perspective. But when we think about the areas in which we failed, I think, you know, that we did force people to make too much of a trade off between their economic interest uh, and the interest of public health. So, you know, for example, by failing to provide enough support for businesses, we forced business owners to choose between closing their doors and keeping people safe or staying open and endangering their employees and their customers. And in many places, people made the choice that ended up endangering people and contributing to the spread of the virus. Uh, that has played out again and again and again. As much as the government has done to support people in staying home or in staying safe, uh, it has also failed to do enough. Uh, and so I think if you were to sort of replay the tape of the pandemic, what you would see is a pattern of uh, an insufficient regard for providing people with the economic security they needed to make the decisions that were in the in the public interest and, and in the interest of public health. Benjamin Applebaum is the lead writer on economics and business for the New York Times editorial board. He's the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Benjamin, thanks for the conversation. My pleasure. Good to be with you.
Turning now to Seattle and to Alexandra Fleming, a therapist there. Lexi, welcome back to the podcast. It's really great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. As hospitalizations increase and as the Delta variant sickens more people, including children, I might add, which I think is pushing some buttons in a, in a different way, I'm noticing in myself um, and in others some anger uh, at, at the people who could have prevented their own serious illness by being vaccinated, but also who are putting other people at risk. And, and I notice that anger and I'd, I'd really like to be able to move past it. And I'm wondering if you have any strategies in mind that you think could be helpful. Absolutely. And I want to say that I share that anger, right? I feel um, similarly frustrated. I'm, I work in healthcare. I, I go and I go to a healthcare facility every day. Um, I have many friends who work in healthcare. My, I have kids in school. So I too have struggled a lot with feeling incredibly frustrated recently with this Delta variant, kind of hearing about these anti-mask rallies and anti-vaccination efforts and just feeling like um, kind of the goalposts keep moving and, and that there, that this, in contrast to a year ago when there was nothing we could do, that it actually feels like there's something we could be doing and being really frustrated that, um, you know, everybody on the group project isn't pulling their weight, you know, <laughs> that sort mm. of like, oh, come on now, if we could all just kind of get together, we could we wouldn't have to be dealing with this uh, to this extent. Yeah, so I, I share that with you. Well, do you have suggestions for what to do with that anger? Actually, that's step one, is being able to name that what we're feeling is anger, right? And so that might sound kind of silly or simple, but the reality is that anger doesn't show up for everybody in the same way. You know, we often think of anger as being sort of red-faced and yelling and kind of throwing things or punching holes in the walls. And that's certainly one way that anger shows up. But actually, for a lot of people, anger can look really different. Some people go really inward. They get very internal. Sometimes people kind of check out or dissociate a little bit. Um, sometimes people cry or are extra irritable. Um, anger can look like a lot of um, sort of presents in different ways. Um, so step number one is really just to name that you're feeling angry. One of the little kind of little cute poems or however you want to sayings in therapy is you got to name it to tame it. So whatever it is that you're feeling, putting a name to it. And it actually, what that does for us um, is it gives us actually a little bit of distance from the emotion. I know that whenever I'm feeling an emotion so big that I can't even put my arms around it and name it, it kind of swallows me up. But as soon as I'm able to say, oh, what I'm feeling is grief, or I'm feeling angry, or I'm feeling um, overwhelmed, it provides what they call psychological distancing. So giving yourself just that little bit of um, room to be able to call it what it is, allows you to say, oh, this is a feeling that's visiting me versus I am angry, like right. my whole identity is consumed by it. So step number one, just name it to tame it. Um, the next thing that I would normally do if I were kind of working with this in myself, or maybe seeing this in a client that I was working with, 
is talk about how anger is often a secondary emotion. And what we mean when we say that is often anger is an expression of sort of this outward expression of how we're feeling, but it's actually covering up a more vulnerable feeling that maybe we don't feel comfortable sort of feeling or expressing. So Hmm. often we'll see anger is a secondary emotion for disappointment, fear, feeling rejected, feeling sad, grief, right? And so one thing that I have found helpful for me in dealing with some of the anger that I have felt in the recent, you know, months as I've watched vacations have to get canceled and I just had to call my cousin and tell her, you know what, I don't think I'm actually going to go to your wedding because my son isn't vaccinated yet. And and just realizing like, oh, I'm angry, Mm -hmm. but underneath that, I'm feeling disappointed. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm feeling really sad that this is still continuing to affect our lives. And I think when you sort of realize the emotion underneath the anger, it it diffuses a, a little bit. It like helps you understand like, okay, that's where that's coming from. So my my next, you know, sort of tip or trick is to sort of sit with the anger for a little while and ask it like, hey, what are you actually, what's underneath that? Mm-hmm. The thing that's interesting about this too, to me, is when I see anger from people who maybe are on the other side of this, who are maybe at an anti-mask rally or at a sort of anti-vaccination event, what I think about or what I try to do is I ask myself, what's underneath their anger, right? Because I have a feeling they too feel powerless. They too feel scared. They too feel worried about this invisible, you know, to the naked eye, virus that has completely upended our lives, our livelihoods. You know, it's just changed the way we do business. It's changed the way we do school. It's changed the way we can hug each other or shake hands. I mean, there's not an aspect of our society that this hasn't affected. And I think all of us feel powerless and scared and worried. And some of us turn to science and medicine and sort of sticking to the facts and sort of um, believing in institutions. But I think sometimes people who feel that same powerlessness instead turn to anger and being mistrustful of institutions. And I'm not saying that I agree with the thought behind the feeling, right? I don't agree with like getting your news from Facebook or believing what your Uncle Joe said. (laughs) You know, I really do believe in science and kind of, you know, doing research that's validated and evidence-based. But what I can do as a human being is I can empathize with that feeling of powerlessness or lack of control. And I can see myself in them because I know exactly how that feels. We're in this together. So that's one way that I find we are able to kind of bridge that divide. Yeah. One thing I'm noticing, Lexi, is that I feel activated by the the anger sometimes. And I realize that that sort of fight or flight hormone is coursing through my Mm -hmm. bloodstream. And it's sort of hard to make rational decisions when you're when you're steaming mad at something 
And, um, you know, you have to find a way to, to shed that pretty quickly, or I think it really eats, eats at you. Absolutely. And, and that's actually one of my favorite things is to kind of talk to people about neuroscience and the structure of the brain, because I think once you understand how your brain works and how we're wired, you appreciate both the sophistication of the human uh, nervous system, but also its limitations as well. You know, I, I think I read um, one time that we sort of have this old hardware that we're all toting <laughs> around. And when we, were, when we were living, you know, out on the savanna and we had real predators and we had, you know, worries about, you know, food supply and being attacked in the night and, you know, would we, you know, kind of, be able to find enough water, being able to sort of scan the horizon and constantly be on hyper alert and just kind of aware of all those things, that really served us. So we have this very old structure um, that's actually in a lot of mammalian brains called an amygdala. And so a lot of people are pretty familiar with that fight, flight, or freeze response. And that really happens um, primarily, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated, but primarily in that structure called the amygdala. And the amygdala is very powerful because when your amygdala is in charge, it kind of shuts down the rest of the brain. It's like a a fire alarm. It's like all you can listen to. And so the amygdala can talk directly to your basal ganglia and tell you to run. So if you've ever touched a hot um, pan and pulled your hand back before you've even registered that you touched something hot, you have your amygdala to thank for that because your amygdala bypasses the decision-making part of your brain, which is right behind your forehead. That's called your prefrontal cortex. And it just goes straight for move that hand away. Like it's a very strong survival instinct. Mm -hmm. So our amygdala is absolutely there to protect us. It's helpful. It saves us. It probably is what kept us alive all these millennia, right? And allowed us to survive to this day. The problem with the amygdala, the problem with this old hardware is it can get activated even when there's no saber-toothed tiger in the bushes or, um, you know, hot pan or some other actual threat. So if, you know, you ever get an email from your boss and it says, hey, can we talk? And your heart starts pounding and you feel your muscles tense and you start kind of breathing quickly that's your amygdala responding as if you are actually under physical threat, right? Right. Now think about all those physical symptoms are things that helped us get ready to fight or flight, right? Like it was like, I'm either going to have to fight this saber-toothed tiger or I'm going to have to run like hell (laughs) to get away from it, right? So, you know, it's, it's funny, like, we think about, oh, gosh, you know, my palms get sweaty or, um, you know, all these symptoms. But in reality, those were things that really did serve us. But at times, our nervous system gets activated in a way that doesn't serve us. So sometimes you'll, re- you'll hear this referred to as the amygdala hijack. So basically, the amygdala takes over the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of our brain that does sort of kind of our best selves. It helps us think and reason and communicate and weigh pros and cons and think about consequences and do all that excellent sort of higher order executive functioning 
that part of our brain cannot function. It goes kind of dormant or it goes offline. And instead, we are totally living in our limbic system, which is all about these emotions that we're having. And so sometimes in the heat of the moment or in anger, we will say things we don't mean, we will act in a way that doesn't feel in keeping with our values, right? So all of us have experienced the amygdala hijack at some point or another because we got scared or angry, right? But what's fabulous about being a human is we don't just have to sit in those emotions. We actually have some control. We actually have some ability to go, whoa, hang on a minute. I do not love this person that I'm being right now. I do not want to be yelling at drivers on the freeway or um, sniping at my partner because he left the cabinet door open. Like This is not actually the person I want to be. And so there's some strategies to bring you back into that prefrontal cortex. So some coping strategies to recognize, oops, I'm in a, my amygdala got hijacked. I'm, I'm getting activated here. I want to be more in my prefrontal cortex, making decisions, weighing pros and cons, communicating and engaging. Lexi, why don't you suggest some coping skills that would help us get out of the hijack and back into our prefrontal cortex? So the first sort of most basic skill is luckily something you can do anytime, anywhere, because you're already doing it, and that's focusing on your breath. So your breath is something that's controlled normally. You don't even have to think about it. But what's cool is you can actually take control of your breath. So anytime you slow down your breathing, what you're actually doing is sending a message to your brain that I am not being chased right now. This is not an emergency. So people have different breathing techniques that they try. Some people like to do box or square breathing where they kind of label the inhale and then the hold and then the exhale and the hold for three to five seconds. Um, other people learned some breathing techniques in yoga or Lamaze class. It really doesn't matter which one you use. It's just the one that you remember to use in the moment. Mm -hmm. So with little kids, I actually teach them, or my little kids, I teach them to picture a bowl of soup and picture yourself breathing in. So smell the soup, breathe in through your nose, and then breathe out through your mouth to cool the soup. So we'll pretend to do smell the soup, cool the soup, right? Anything to sort of slow down your breath is going to bring you out of that amygdala hijack. The other thing that I find is really helpful is movement. So many of us have been stuck behind computers. Many of us are kind of doom scrolling on our phones, reading about these, oh gosh, cases are up, and this person and that person, and you know, we're getting kind of inundated with um, sort of uh, bad news all day long. I really highly recommend that we watch our media diet so pay attention to, oh my gosh, in, is listening to this podcast or this radio program or this watching this show activating my nervous system? We absolutely can get activated by media. Right. And then being conscious about saying, you know what? I'm going to turn off the news and I'm going to go for a walk outside. Anytime you move your body, you're actually metabolizing the cortisol and the adrenaline that got released. So it's great, great, great to move your body and metabolize those stress hormones after you've had a sort of nervous system activation. 
one of the things I've learned during the pandemic is that you can turn notifications off on your phone. You don't have to know every bad thing that happens within 30 seconds of it happening. You can wait to the end of the day and catch up on it. Yeah. Isn't it interesting to think how these devices are actually designed to work with that nervous system, though, to kind of catch your eye? They're red. They ding. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're no fools. Yeah. Yeah. Any other tips? I really do think that recognizing that, you know, when you're in the amygdala hijack, you actually can't talk and you can't make good decisions. So that was my final tip would be try not to make any decisions when you are activated like that. We tend to kind of think, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to quit my job and go do this. I'm going to, you know, when we're sort of in that moment, but we really want to kind of do the, the work to get back down into a regulated state, allow that prefrontal cortex to come back online, and then think about, okay, let me make some decisions here. I'm upset about this situation. What is it? What is in my power right now? What is it something that I can do to help? Um, can I volunteer at a vaccination site? Can I um, write a letter? Can I um, give money, donate money in support of a cause I believe in? So I really do think that we um, have the power to sort of listen to our emotions as communicators, but not necessarily feel like we are um, beholden to our emotions. And then we can kind of listen to them, sit in them, get back into our prefrontal cortex, and then make decisions that are more aligned with our values. This is all wise, wise advice. Alexandra Fleming is a licensed independent clinical social worker at the Swedish Center for Perinatal Bonding and Support and at Nurturing Wisdom Therapy in Seattle. Lexi, thanks so much for talking with me again. Thanks so much for having me. Today is Will Rogers' last day with us. Will has spent the summer as a production intern on our team, generating terrific ideas, handling research, tracking down guests, and adding his gentle, smart presence to editorial meetings. He's getting back to his full-time gig, nursing school, where his compassion will be nurtured, we trust, knowing his patient care will be outstanding. Thanks for everything. And Will, we'll leave you with the words of that other Will Rogers, who said, there are three kinds of men, the one that learns by reading, the few who learn by observation, the rest of them, have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. We're on Twitter as human underscore caring. It's a good way to stay in touch with our guests and our upcoming episodes. The podcast is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett, with help from Will Rogers. We have research assistants from medical librarians Amanda Schwartz, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Catherine Gibbs, Carrie Grinstead, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. <laughs>